ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Hey, Chris and Dan. This is Haley, and I'm listening from Utah in the United States. It's amazing to see how far your podcast has traveled to all of us across the world, and I absolutely love the positive message you guys are constantly sending out. Every episode really resonates with me, and I just want you to know how much of an impact you guys have truly made in my life. I love you guys so much. Please never change. You guys are just what this world needs. I can't wait for the next episode, and I love you guys so much. All right, much love. Hey, what is up, everyone? And thank you so much to Haley from Utah in the United States. Please keep sending over these audio messages. This is all about you guys, and it really does highlight and give a picture of the community. We want to know about you, where you listen to this thing from, and what you're up to on planet Earth. The sound quality is not important, it's a message that matters, and all you need to do is record a quick message on your phone and just send over via the Ascend Facebook page, or you can even email via the Ascend podcast website. And this podcast that we have this week is from our time at the Glastonbury Symposium. We chatted to a guy called Dr. Ian Rubenstein, and he was somebody who was completely immersed in a more of a scientific background. But as you will hear in this podcast, he was still open-minded at the time. However, he had a few experiences that completely made him question his reality. He still currently works as a doctor, but he's interested in many different questions like consciousness, hypnotherapy, the extended mind, the placebo, acupuncture... And that's at least what we discovered from our short time with him in this conversation. We really wish we had a little bit longer with this man. We overran on another podcast that we did earlier. So we had to keep this to a certain time frame. And this is still a great podcast. It goes all over the place as always. But as you will tell, this podcast just really started to heat up and warm up nicely and the conversation got flowing, and we run out, we run out of time. It's our fault, we know. It's not Ian's. When we do these conversations, normally we don't have any time limit. We just go for the flow. But this was the only one that we had to do that. And I know anyway you're going to love this one. We cover some very interesting stuff. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do that for our Patreon page. And also... We also now have a one-off donation option and these two options are the best way to support the podcast. It really means a lot to us that you feel that this thing is worth a few bucks each month. It really does just help pay for the run of this podcast and if you can help us out that would be amazing and if you can't help us out even by just telling a friend about the podcast or your thoughts alone is supporting us. So anyway enjoy this conversation.
So um, I'm trying to think where's the best place to really start this because even straight away when we first met before this and um, obviously I was listening to you talk to Chris when I was setting up the equipment and stuff, I could um, hear that you're already very varied in where you could go and you're open to many different areas as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, I heard you say something before to Chris and um, you said that it's clear to see that something is definitely going on, hmm. whatever whatever that thing is going on. Um, but maybe a good place I want to ask you is, let's say that the whole population on the planet was, because at the minute we know that not everyone is open to alternative ways of thinking and hmm. seeing a different model, model of reality. What do you think would actually happen if every single person was aware that something else was going on? Well, I'm not sure that's true. It's interesting. Um, when I got into uh, mediumship, I assumed that everybody thought like I did. In other words, came from a Western materialist viewpoint. Um, certainly my, one of my, my worries was what would my colleagues think of me? Um, would I be struck off, you know, for exploring this? What I found most interesting was is that most of the people I came across, certainly a lot of my patients, just accept this. Mm -hmm. They're quite happy to accept that spirits are real, there's life after death, um, that weird stuff happens. Um, it's actually the people from my background, which is sort of Western scientific educated background, aren't so prepared to accept it. So I, I don't know, I mean I think from a sort of Western middle class educated background we have a certain world view that's not exactly true. And if you look at the Islamic world for instance, many of my educated doctors who are uh, colleagues who are uh, Muslim, they, they're quite happy to accept the concept of jinn, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, another order of creation. So I think people are more open. I think there's a party line that, that, that our a cultural paradigm, yeah. which I think Gary used the term cultural paradigm, yeah. which mm. we all accept. Um, but actually, when you speak to people, they're often sort of going off piste, shall we say. Uh, I remember... Um, well, I was I was working in um, I've been working in cancer care or reorganising cancer services in London. I remember going to so so I was uh, leaving my practice and working uh, in management with the NHS, and I was meeting doctors I wouldn't normally come into contact with. These would be professors and you know top people, you know scientists. So I remember speaking to uh, one professor from University College London. She came up to me. She said, um, uh, she, "We're in a bar in, in London. We're, we're, someone was going, having a leaving do." And she said, "Ian, I hear you've written a book about uh, your psychic experiences. I'm really interested." Oh, wow! And she's a professor of I can't remember what it was now. I think child renal physiology. Yeah. Now she can't stand up at a conference and say this stuff is. Yeah. is she's not going to do that. Mm -hmm. You can't. Um, so my feeling is is that. Someone needs to blow the whistle. Right? Gary, Gary talked about um, a whistleblower of the cultural paradigm. I think, yeah, that's what I am. I like that. Yeah, because <laughs> I've had these experiences, and, I'm, and I really have always been happy to talk about them. Mm. Um, you know, um, because to me, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, um, it's a bit like uh, you know, you're in the Matrix, yeah. and the world is the the Matrix is the world that's been pulled over. You your took eyes. the red pill. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, so what happened to me? I mean, I've had quite a few experiences but the I suppose the seminal experience was when I was 19 and um, I witnessed what spiritualists call transfiguration so um, I was um, it's my first year at medical school so this was summer 1974 about 
in those days they just finished landing on the moon you know and if you were a boy you were at medical school in those days you were into science you were into astronautics and it was wonderful it was a great time mm. to be young and um it was science 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 so there i was at my friend's house uh with his girlfriend and with my sister so his girlfriend was called felicity and she had long dark hair and so my friend nick was sitting next to felicity and my sister was one side I was opposite them and, she, and my sister was one side so she saw our profile and uh, being adolescents it was all a bit intense and although she was going out with Nick I was flirting with her and my sister quite liked Nick so all these things were happening and um, I was talking and then I looked at Felicity and now she had long dark hair and brown eyes and all of a sudden there was a blonde haired snow queen well. looking at me blonde hair with a fringe high cheekbones very thick white distorted white lips like with frosted lipstick an imperious look on her blue eyes with eyes that stared into my soul and it was a bit like a white light it wasn't really a white light not that you could see but it was like boring into my soul and I got this Mm. download now in 1974 the term download didn't exist but it was like something had been plonked into my mind which I kind of wrap it was stop what you're doing is wrong in other words you shouldn't be flirting with her I was drawing (laughs) on her energies I suppose Um, (laughs) mark this no, there's more to life than meets the eye. One day you'll understand. And it was as if I was watching a play that I believed was real. And then somebody flicked open the back cloth, the backdrop, and I saw the machinery behind it. Yeah. And you think, bloody hell, what, you know, what was that? And, it's, and, and, and at that precise instant, my sister started screaming at the top of her voice. I mean, she was only 15. She was terrified. My God, can you see those lips? And I turned mm-hmm. around and said, what, well, you've seen it too. I looked back and Felicity was completely normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we both saw the same thing. Well, sorry to jump in, but just before I forget, why do you think we actually get moments of that in our lives? Because, I mean, I've had that quite a bit right. in my life where, I mean, it might not be to that extent. It could be just like a lucid dream. I mean, it could be a dream that we've explained before. I had a dream last night. And mm. just little little moments I get in my life. Why do you think we actually, is it to give us a push or I don't know? Well, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. I, I've, got, I've got some ideas. I mean, in... In, the case, in this case, I didn't know what it meant for years. It was, and it was like 30 years until I started getting more stuff coming through. Mm. And now I do know what it, what it meant. And yes, it was linked. So my working hypothesis for what it is, is that reality isn't what we think. We are not who we think we are. Space is not what we think it is. And time is not what we think it is. Now, if, you, if, you have a, if, if a doctor has a patient who doesn't know who they are, doesn't know where they are, doesn't know when they are. I say they're confused. So I think the whole of humanity is confused. I actually think that probably everything exists at once. There's no such thing as time, it's a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. And that we have a network of links. So we're weaving like a tapestry which, which extends across time and across space. And that's what we are. So yes, I think it's designed to give us a push. <sighs> Whether we do it or there are other forces involved, I think there's lots yeah. of things going on. But I think we have an extended self that gets involved. But that, but, but again, how do you define yourself? I mean, when you start looking at this, it all becomes a bit, bit difficult. You know, wh- where do I end and somebody else yeah. begins and all this stuff? Yeah. Very, very hard. That's why it's so destabilizing. And it's, it's interesting. In the, uh, in the Kabbalah, which is the Jewish mysticism, they say that you shouldn't, dis- you shouldn't study Kabbalah unless you're a married man over the age of 40 because it's so destabilizing you need those roots be put down otherwise it will sw- sweep you away it's, it's interesting you talked about the roots yeah, and I hope this is, is relatable but um, 
I find that in certain areas of my life, if I'm not grounded, I would say, I wouldn't say rooted because I think everything changes, but mm. the word grounded I would use. I can't, if I'm not fully grounded in one area, I can't put too much emphasis on the other because that thing, the new thing would completely just tear me sightly yeah. apart because I'm yeah. not grounded. Do you, do you find that as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the space cadet uh, syndrome is very common. So when you start opening up, what you can call a Kundalini experience. You know about the Kundalini experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I now think that I underwent a Kundalini experience at age 47. Um, and I was like a space cadet for, for years. I'd go up to parties and stuff. I'd be the, the mad guy at the party, getting you in a corner and talking to you. I mean, I'm a bit like that anyway. Um, my kids tell me to shut up, Dad, you're embarrassing me. But, but um, it was uncontrollable because I felt like I'd, I'd had something I wanted to share. And that's actually almost like a religious experience, isn't it? You know, the guy knocking on your door, hey, have you heard of Jesus? Yeah. I, I can now see where that comes from. I mean, you have to back away from that. But it's, it's very overwhelming when this happens. Yeah. It's like a waft of energy, and it sweeps you up, and it can sweep you off your feet. The guy who trained me, Keith Hudson, he said, look, he said, if you're going to have, think of a tree. If you're going to have your branches into heaven, your roots equally have to go into the earth. Otherwise, oh. the tree falls over. Oh, here's another interesting one. Yeah. Um, I heard a quote, a really interesting one, said, if your roots are in heaven, they've also got to be in hell. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well there's, there, I mean, often... It's going through a hellish experience that opens you up to these things. Yeah. And if you look at people who've opened up to these experiences, you often find they've had quite traumatic childhoods mm-hmm. or, or bad things have happened to them. I think... It might need that darkness to see the light. Yeah, sort of I actually think it cracks you open. I mean, often you find people who've gone through this, what's happened is, is they've, they've been in situations where they've been supplying energy to people. Mm-hmm. Now, you could argue that, well, these people have got a lot of energy anyway, and the sharks, like, like, like bleeding yeah. sharks, they come and get you. But I suspect that what happens is you're in a situation where you're... <laughs> people don't like your aura, your, your protective aura is punctured, mm-hmm. and it lets the, lets, lets the good stuff out, but it also lets the light in. Yeah. And, it, and, and you need to go through that to let the light in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably what happened with me, if I'm being honest. Well, yeah, you, you've definitely... Um had a really awakening period um, and that was a very awakening period when you have to really but I think the crucial element is like when your whole paradigm of reality shifts from one end of the spectrum where you believed that you were very analytical Hmm. science based doctor to pushed in the complete opposite other ends of the spectrum Hmm. did you find any similarities between the two worlds well, I, I mean, it, it, I suppose I've always had, uh, had an open mind. I've always been interested in UFOs, and I used to do a lot of hypnosis in my early... Uh, so I used to hypnotise kids at school. I was always interested in, in, in this stuff. In I the mean, cool I, stuff? Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah because I, mean, I grew up in the 1970s, and you were, you were influenced by this stuff then. Uh, so I never 100% dismissed it, but your scientific education thinks, teaches you to think in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always felt that, I mean, science doesn't get to truth. It, science is about building models of reality, mm-hmm. right? It, it, you make observations, you erect a, a model of reality that can then predict what's going to happen. So science is just a way of working out what's going to happen next. If I do that, that will happen. Yeah. That's a useful model. Mm-hmm. The trouble is we get very hung up on our models, and certain models work really well. I mean, quantum physics works really well. Relativity works really well. We can't square the two, but they, they, they're useful models. Um, but they are just models. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, Karl Popper was a philosophy of science, and he said, but basically, you never prove anything. 
what science does, it disproves things. So if something is scientific, it's, it, you can have an experiment to disprove something, but you never prove it because there can always be more information coming along saying, well, that disproves your hypothesis. So everything should be contingent upon mm -hmm. the next thing that comes in. Uh, and Charles Fort, you know, the, the, uh, the, the great um, uh, chronicler of, of the stuff that's done by science, said that, really, uh, I only consider any hypothesis as a convenient set of clothes to wear for a time. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and then, and, and, you know, until you discard them and find something else to use. And I think that is, for me, the genuine scientific spirit. The problem is what I call junk science, where people who, who don't really think about what science is about and they then start saying, well, we know this, we know that. We know certain things within certain limits. Um, I mean, for instance, consciousness. The guys who say we're just biological robots. So consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. Well, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, See, there must be a magnet. There's a magnitude of consciousness which isn't being... Like, yeah. Which you can't, under, you can't underwhelm it with an answer such as that. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's worth looking at the, the, the physical correlates of consciousness, consciousness but... I mean, if you actually think about what consciousness is and what stuff, real stuff is that we can touch, they're two different things. They may not even, yeah. it, it, one may not even be relevant to the other. You have to have different ways of looking at things. Mm -hmm. There's a question I keep, I keep asking myself is because people always say, oh, it's just a, like, not, or not everyone who I'm with, everyone thinks it's, it's not, a, a, not a part of the brain. It's something, big, something a lot larger, which we're obviously all in mm. agreement as well. Well, not agreement, but we think it is. <laughs> um, I hope it is. <laughs> um, oh, I lost my thought there. Oh, I was going to say, oh, I completely lost my thought. I was going to say it was a good point as well. Ah, oh, can I get it back? Can I get it back? Oh yeah, that's it. Got it. But the thing that's interesting to me that I keep questioning is how does and this is an argument that people say as well is how does because I can't understand and get my head around how matter itself can create consciousness. No. Yeah. I don't. Well, I, I can't either. Yeah. I don't think you can. I mean, if, if, if matter as defined as bits and pieces that move around like Lego bricks, you, you can't. Yeah. You can't get to qualia, which is, you know, what it feels like to be here and to the, the sensation of, of seeing the colour blue or something. Yeah. You can't get to that from... Yeah. I mean, it, it's not built in there. So, it's, and people tie themselves up in knots. I mean, I actually think the most useful... Uh, interpretation is what the what the Victorian spiritualist says. The universe is we all know the universe is mental. Uh, it is mental, isn't yeah. it? But but actually, is a men <laughs> is actually mental. In other words, it's an infoverse. So so in other and again, what's information? But in other words, matter is subservient to consciousness. So maybe consciousness creates matter. There's a there's a theory called biocentrism, and the, yeah, really and, really interesting that as well. Which, which is uh, the guy said this guy I can't remember his name now. Is it Robert Lanza? Robert Lanza, yeah. yeah, and he says that. But that uh, organisms wear space and time like a turtle wears its shell, and I'm coming to the conclusion of that. That I, I think that I, I wonder if we, like living beings, are point, points of view of a universal consciousness that's exploring itself. Like, like an evolving. Mm. That's what he says. Doing like an evolving consciousness. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's such a thing as time, can anything actually evolve? I mean, that's another thing. But but yeah, but, but that's a good but, point as well. But but maybe <laughs> what we are, we're like. CCTVs of universal consciousness. Yeah. So maybe creation for what it is is like a a carpet, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and seen from the whole, you see the whole carpet. But then seen from within the carpet, so the universal consciousness focuses on one thread, and that thread is our life. So when you follow along the thread, oh, time and space exists. 
change perspective and you're outside of it. So I, 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 I th- so maybe death is just a change of perspective. Oh, That's that. a really good yeah. point, actually. Which is, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is all about perspective, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my. That's what I'm coming to to the conclusion. Do you think that death is? I mean, it's a big question. It's a million dollar question. But do you, do you think that death is just like sort of a transition into another reality? Or uh, this is the big question. I mean, yeah. as, as a do- this is, I mean, listen. I'm 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 I find it as fearful as anybody else. The question is: Is death a door you step through, or is it a wall you smash into? Yeah. Um, and I I don't know. I mean mm-hmm. I I mean I, said, I don't believe in anything. I mean, I, no, I, don't, me say that. I do believe that the paranormal phenomena are real because I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, what yeah. it so I do believe that. Yeah. I mean, I'll rather say I know that. Do, do, and, I, and, I, and when I'm working as a medium, I buy into the spiritualist hypothesis. In other words, we die and there's another side. That's a very useful hypothesis. Is it real? I don't know because I, I don't know. I hope it's real. Yeah. No. Um, I don't know. I mean, for year, before I got into this, I used to. Before the Matrix, I, I, I was reading um, John Mack's book *Close Encounters*. Because I was into UFOs for years. I was a member of before British UFO Research Association when I was a kid, yeah. and I followed the UFO phenomenon for years. I mean, I actually really are very interested in that, probably more than spiritualism. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading uh, about these contactees, and it occurs to me: these grey aliens, supposing this was pre-Matrix. Supposing we're on a giant spaceship, the Earth's been destroyed, we're all in deep hypersleep, um, and in order to keep us there, they're playing the world. We're in the Matrix just to keep us going. And every so often, we wake up to see our android robot attendees, these grey aliens, looking after us. Yeah, yeah. How would we make sense of that? I mean, I don't, it's just, that's just... Uh, no, that, we, so, we've explored that many times. Yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows? I mean, I don't, there are so many. I mean, you know... You, and, and you know when when people who aren't into this playing with ideas here, they think, "Well, these guys are loopy." Yeah. But I mean, how do we know anything? Um, it's very very interesting. The, the the problem is when you get into this field, it does loosen you up so much. Yeah. Um, and then people say, "Well, your your well, your brain so your mind's so open, your brain's going to fall out." Um, so you have to be careful. I like playing with ideas, but you have yeah, to. But, but you have to have a you have to have a framework within which to work or operate. So I like science. I mean, I love technology. I think it's going to be great. Um, uh, I I work within the spiritualist framework because that's what I've been drawn to. I mean, it, it found me. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up being given messages from patient. I ended up being led to a spiritualist church. I ended up sitting in a spiritual development circle, and that's interesting because. In my background, which was a working-class family in Tottenham, that, there was quite a lot of spiritualists around in those days. So it's almost like that's my home, that's my roots, that's mm-hmm. where I come from, and from that base, I can then explore the other stuff. Yeah, I don't necessarily buy into it. Yeah, I love that. You've uh, you've certainly addressed so many different uh, major um, questions in life, such as like, what is the nature of consciousness? What is currently on your mind now? What's the question that's on your mind now? Or are these co- just continuous questions that are formulating new answers over time? No, the big thing is consciousness. The, mm-hmm. the big thing, what, what, what is the nature? I mean, I'm not, I'm not very good at meditating. You know, I'd love to be one of these guys who, who goes to meditate and you go into these deep Zen states. I find that really hard. Um, I, I'm interested, I suppose I'm always interested in the, philo- the philosophy side, which in spiritualism, the philosophy means the ideas behind spiritualism. I'm interested, mm. I'm interested in these ideas. I, I th- 
There's a lot of research now going on into consciousness studies. It yeah. used to be something you couldn't talk about in science. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be some breakthroughs. It, and, and I think the materialistic scientists need to work on it because they may be right. I don't think they are right. But I mean, you need to pursue all avenues yeah, of course. and mm -hmm. see when you come up against a brick wall and then make a move. I mean, and I think this—I think there's a dynamic tension between these these ideas. So you've got Sheldrake, you've got the, and you've got the materialists and people like that. And, and if you can have an open, honest de debate, you'll have this tension, dynamic tension, that leads you up new pathways. Mm -hmm. um, it may well be that it's that we're not able to understand it. We may just be too thick to understand yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you may be in the position of ants <laughs> on the floor looking with a stained glass window with light falling through it and the patterns on the floor and they are saying, what is this, what is this? And they can't actually look up to see the stained glass window. It's beyond their, their comprehension. We may be at that level. I don't know. Yeah, we actually, and um, we're blinded in a way as such, like we see a fascinated on the floor with the, um, the pattern on the floor. That's, that is currently us stuck in this reality basis. Yeah. We're not looking above and beyond at the big stained glass window that's mm. permeating all this light, this the image onto the floor. I mean, the the question is, how can we stop getting distracted by so much of this reality mm. to look at that stained glass window? Mm. Well, in my case, it sort of broke the light broke through. So I mean, I mean, there I was working as an ordinary doctor in a busy practice for. Well, it's in 2003, and I've been there since 1984. And then um, a patient came into my, room, into my room and started giving me messages from my dead grandfather about a very difficult uh, family situation, which was dead accurate. And then that opened, opened my mind to the possibilities. And then one thing led to another. In very rapid succession, I had a series of startling coincidences, uh, synchronicities, which led me to sitting in a development circle for, for trainee mediums. Oh. It just as a laugh, really. Yeah. Mm. I got along with this, and then, <laughs> and then it was fine. I started to occasionally give halfway decent messages to the people in the group, and that was great. And then the fun started when it started to break through into my profession, professional life. So when I started uh, against almost against my will, started giving messages to my patients that they could take. Um, then word got round that you know I'm doing this, and uh, then it, life really took off. Because yeah. I, I was worried for my professional life. Yeah, really. I was going to see that. I was supposed to see that. Oh, can I just? Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask you. Um, do you think everybody's ready to hear the message? Um, no. Because I was going to say a lot of people be like hammering to be find an answer, find some sort of question. But the message that you will be receiving could be something completely separate. And well, these messages were not like a general message about. Yeah, yeah, these were specific to people's lives. So. Um, uh, I remember one happened where this lady came into my room, Lucy. Um, this was on the 6th of December 2003. And, uh, sorry, 2004. And I'd, be, I'd be, got very new into, into this mediumship. And um, she was crying. I mean, she was 66 years old, um, happy, lively lady. I'd known her for many years. And she was bereft. She couldn't stop crying. She said, you've got to help me, doctor. So I couldn't work out what was wrong with her. And... I gave her a prescription for antidepressants because she said, you've got to help me, doctor, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and as I took the prescription out of my printer, I felt someone banged the back of my head, and I heard a voice saying, ask her about her father. And with that, I saw the misty outline of a man wow. over her left shoulder who I could describe. Whoa. So I said, Lucy, tell me about your dad. And she stopped crying. She looked at me very intently and said, he was killed on the 8th of December 2000, uh, 38 years ago. 
So this was the 6th of December, so it's an anniversary time. Do you think that's why I'm depressed, Doctor? And I said, well, did he look like and describe the man I could see over her left shoulder? She said, yeah. How do you know that? I said, oh, I think I can see him over your left shoulder. And she grabbed my arm and said, thank you, you don't know what this means to me. And the story goes that her father was killed by the IRA. Uh, he was speaking out against what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And she'd always felt his presence around her. But because they were a Catholic family, um, that, um, that she couldn't talk about it. Wow. And I was the first person to mention it. And of course, she then realized it was 38 years, coming up to the 38th anniversary that he died. So she now knew why she was depressed. The minute she knew it, she could, she could handle it. Yeah. So she said, oh, thank you. Now I know why I'm depressed. I don't need your pills. Thank you. She said, I don't need your silly pills, she said. Oh. And she left <laughs> my room. And she then promptly spoke to my receptionist, Carol. My jaw was on the floor. I thought my career was over. You know, you yeah. can't say these things to patients. And then two, four weeks later, she comes back to see me. And I said, what's wrong, Lucy? She said, nothing. So I said, well, why are you here? She yeah. said, I've come to tell you a story. So two weeks after I saw you, Doctor, I was at my Irish social club, and there's this creepy geezer who's got the second sight. He was tugging at my coattails, saying, Lucy, Lucy, I've got a message for you. Come into this room and I'll give you a message. She said, well, I'm not coming into any room with you. You've got a message you tell me here and now. He said, do you know there's a fellow over your left shoulder? I think he's your father. And she said, of course I do. My doctor told me that two weeks ago. And anyway, he looked looked shocked. She said, that sure took the wind out of his sails. (laughs) So that, that confirmed what you were saying? What I was saying. She came back to let me know. That was a beautiful story. Now that turned her life. In fact, when I gave this talk in Enfield, where I practice, she came to the talk with her son. And her son shook my, shook my hand and said, you don't know what this meant to mum. It completely changed her. Wow, so this, really these things are very powerful. Something else I want to um, touch on as well. It was a very uh, interesting, powerful story, by the way. Um, you said before about hypnosis. I mean, we slightly touched on this before on the podcast. Hmm. But um, I would love, well, obviously, the way you're talking and stuff, I would love to see what your thoughts are on hypnosis. Um, hmm. Is there any certain key area to hypnosis that, I mean, especially maybe in regards to the metaphysical side of things, that, that fascinates you that, with the research and work you did on hypnosis? Well, I, well I, I, I got into hypnosis because I was interested. I, when I was at school, I found, it, I found consciousness and things fascinating, actually. And of course, you see the books, they're always like swooning women with powerful men. Yeah. You know, you know oh, I'll have some of that, you know, that's, that's good. So, so. It's always a. And actually, when I was at school, I was the. Well, yeah, there's always this energy, isn't there? There's yeah. always. This, and I was at school, I was the, the, the you know, the, the nerdy guy with glasses who didn't like playing rugby and went to a rugby playing school, and I was like in the library. I didn't want to be beaten up at school. So, but, but, so what I do, I practice on my. I didn't have friends, I had the. Experimental subjects, you know. <laughs> I practice on my friends, a bit like you know, Dexter, that cartoon Dexter. How has he got all the girls? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that never worked. That never worked. But, but I used to hypnotise people, and the, the the first person I hypnotised was a girl called Kathy. She was very thin, and the the rugby captain could not bend. I made her arm, so your arm's now steel, and the rugby captain couldn't couldn't bend it. Yeah. Well, and the other guy, there was a guy called Alan. In those days, everybody was taking acid. And I was never into drugs. It's just not my thing. Um, and um, I said, look, you can trip without acid. I can show you. And once, he had the most amazing trip under, uh, under hypnosis. And then word got round. And they were literally queuing up along the corridor for me to hypnotise them. It was marvellous. <laughs> I'd gone from being sort of no one, a, no, 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 a no one to being the guy everyone wanted to do. It was lovely. And... Um, and, and eventually, of course, the teacher saw that he was accused. What's he doing? He's hypnotising people. So um, <laughs> the, school, the school headmistress, Mrs. Lambert, she called me into her office. And she, had a, and she was ever so nice. She said, look, Ian, I've got a degree in psychology. I know, 
I know that um, hypnosis is real, um, but you can't do it at school. Um, wait till you get to medical school. And by the way, would you mind signing this disclaimer form? Now, in those days, you never had a disclaimer. So she was covering her ass with paperwork. I mean, we're all doing it now, yeah. but she was way ahead of her time. It was about 19, <laughs> 1970, I guess, or 1969. Yeah, so, but when I went to medical school, nothing. They didn't mention it. Yeah. Nothing at all. No, that completely, and I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. So, so when I went, so, and I've always been an unusual thinker. I mean, I don't think like other people do. I think outside the box. Um, so eventually, when, I did, when we did my psychiatry rotation, I was trying to work out, yeah, the, the, the psychiatrist who was actually training us, he actually ended up leaving working for La Roche Pharmaceuticals. So he, he was basically a, a drugum guy. Um, I mean, his thing was, you know, get the diagnosis, stick him on drugs. And even as a medical student, I thought, I, I don't buy into this. And I was, I was thinking, well, may, maybe we're dealing with energy. And I came up with this complicated thing. And the psychiatrist, they, actually, they, thought I was, I, they thought I had problems. They thought I was mad. There was one psychologist there uh, called Penny. She took me aside. She said, Ian, you've, you've got interesting thinking. You've basically come up with Freud's libido theory. I said, Have I? All right. <laughs> yeah, the energy in his brain. And she said, she said yeah, but, but she said, these guys, they're, they're really interested in, in drugs, you know. So just tone it down a bit. So I did. Um, so I... Yeah, so you were forced to toe the party line. But, so mm -hmm. but, but, but I started using hypnosis clinically, funnily enough, when I was doing obstetrics and gynaecology. I worked for the most right-wing, fascist, racist, female um, uh, obstetrician ever. She hated everybody. In fact, she hated everybody who wasn't herself. Mm -hmm. I got on with her because I get on with awkward people. I mean, basically, she'd been jilted by, um, by the doctors she worked with. And she had it in for everybody. And I, 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 she was a good surgeon. I actually liked her. And we had a woman on the ward who couldn't... Um, she had a hysterectomy and they couldn't take the catheter out. She couldn't pee. And she was blocking a bed. So I said to her, I said, look, I, do you mind if I hypnotise her? So um, it might work. She said, well, give it a go. I did. And we got the catheter out. And then she started sending me private patients. I was a trainee. So then I then rotated into general practice. I was the only tr trainee GP with a private practice. I didn't actually like private medicine, but at the time Margaret Thatcher was in power, and I thought she was gonna get rid of the NHS, and I thought, well, I, you know, maybe I've gotta get used to charging for this stuff. So I had quite a thriving private practice, which I stopped, because I don't actually think medicine, money and medicine go, go together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I was thinking, you know, but I, I, I used to use a lot of hypnosis, and the reason why I stopped doing it was because it's very time consuming, very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. What do you think's going on? Like on a, do you think I, it's, 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 is, it, is it to do with our own mind or is it? Yeah, yeah. Is it so hip, when I, I say to my patients, I, I don't hypnotize anybody. I teach you how to access this altered state of awareness. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and I would suture episiotomies. You know, when women give birth, they cut the uh, perineum they, to let the baby out a bit more. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. So, so when women give birth, sometimes you have to make an incision to get the baby's head out. Mm -hmm. It's very commonly done. And um, that causes bruising and it could be painful to stitch up, I'd do that under hypnosis. And the midwife said, it's great, the women don't feel anything and they get less bruising. Well, I'd, I'd fit coils under hypnosis, I'd, minor ops, I once took someone's um, a, a foreign body out of their fingernail, she didn't like injections, so I did it under hypnosis. And I worked at, at Whittington Hospital in 1980, we were treating chronic pain patients and I was using hypnosis. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, there's something which has sort of lapsed now. I don't do that. So after that, um, 
I got into acupuncture. Mm, that's, I, I forgot. I wanted to ask you about that as well. Yeah. I'm really so I and I've had a and now acupuncture's great and it works and and I wasn't into that. It's just the guy who trained me in general practice had uh, got an award from the Royal College of GPs. And mm-hmm. he decided to, tr- to train with Felix Mann, who was introducing acupuncture into, the pra- into this country in the 1980s, medical acupuncture. And, and Bill was treating stuff. He said, it works. Um, and in those days, you had to sterilize the needles and resharpen them. Well, I wasn't going to get into that. Then the AIDS epidemic hit. There's no way I was going to get into that. Um, but what I used to do occasionally was use a hypodermic needle, which is a, <laughs> not a nice thing to use. So they, they cut the skin. Um, but I, I remember once I was, a, I was working at the London School of Economics, I was mm-hmm. in student health there just for a year, and a woman had been carried up, a secretary, she had terrible migraine, and she was vomiting, she couldn't sit down the light, and they thought she had meningitis, so she, they grabbed, carried up, she was like between two people, and she was like being dragged up the stairs, she couldn't stand, and she was vomiting, she looked dreadful, and there's always loads of people with her, frightened. They said, she got meningitis. She said, no, I haven't. I've got migraine. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have any morphine or anything. So we put her into the sick room. And it was the, the, the curtains were drawn. And I thought, I'll use acupuncture. I took a green hypodermic needle and popped it into GB20, which was just behind the neck. And within 20 seconds, the pain had gone. And it, it was great because I remember I, I drew the curtains back. And they were like, like that and let the light in. And she said, I... Tonight's not bothering me. It was like something out of the Hammer House of Horror film, you know, where, they, where the hero draws the curtains back. And Dracula's at the back. Exactly, butt. exactly <laughs> like that. And she walked out with me, and, and they started clapping. Oh. <laughs> it was that profound. Wow. And, and, um, and that's when I thought, my God, this acupuncture is really useful. So do you think, just sorry to jump in, is, so do you think acupuncture is sort of working on a level where it's sort of, it's, because through the body you can release a lot of tension, you can yeah. release a lot of stuff. Yeah. Do you think it's working on a level where it's, it's sort of getting into places and then releasing that energy or tension, whatever it is? Well, that's one way of looking at it. Look, yeah. I, I, if you buy into the Western paradigm, it's, it ain't doing nothing. <laughs> All right? If you buy into the Chinese system, there are these energy meridians and it's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the concept of, of life force energy is very useful. Uh, and if once you start talking like that, you've gone beyond the pale in, in medicine and science. No such thing as life force. Maybe it's maybe we're talking more like information. Maybe a, a computer analogy is better. Whatever we're dealing with, I think you have to, uh, the, the the ancient concepts are better. The Chinese meridians are useful. Um, certainly, there's points in the body where if you stick needles in, it seems to do all sorts of things. Um, so the chakra system is very useful. The Ayurvedic, the Indian idea of chakras, is very useful when you're doing psychic work. And the Chinese meridian system is very useful when using acupuncture. Wow. Again, they're hypotheses. Um, uh, maybe we're talking about different frequencies, different levels. Maybe we're talking about different bodies. Spiritualists talk about the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body. Um, who knows? Yeah. But, but all I can tell you is acupuncture, I, I've used it for years and years now. Um, uh, and, and I've had good results, the patients like it. Um, so that I've been running that in my practice, and now we've got another doctor using it. Wow. So it's not, so yeah, I, I guess you could say I've really been open to, to these things, really. Um, so it, the spirit, the, the psychic stuff came out of the blue, but I think the ground was prepared by being open minded. There's so many avenues where we can take directional health, alternate health medicine, and 
the first things first is obviously like if if it it was if it's a success western um western science will probably class it as a placebo but Ah, oh, well, I mean, placebo is something I'm very interested in. I mean, I've had a paper published about placebo. Oh, really? You Absolutely, I should have yeah. said that before starting the, the podcast. In the, in the British <laughs> Medical Journal, no less. So my wife's boss, a guy called Rudy Pitroff, and my wife was a sexual health doctor. Yeah. And she worked with this German guy, Rudy, Rudy Pitroff. He's a really interesting guy, very unusual way of thinking. And he came up with, the, with a really interesting idea. So the problem with placebo, I mean, I think we should use it. I mean, I've, I, I used to use placebo, Okay. So placebo is a drug you give to someone, it's not a drug. You tell someone it's got amazing properties, they take it and they believe it. You can do the opposite. You can give someone a nocebo. I'm going to give you this, it's poisonous. Right? And they can have side effects. So you, how you sell it is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Rudy came up with the idea, he was saying, look, if it's not ethical to give people a placebo, placebo because you're lying, but we know there is a placebo effect, so supposing you have a drug, a trial, where you're trialling a drug and there's the placebo. 30% of people re- respond to the placebo. 45% of people respond positively to the drug. So we say the drug is better than the placebo, and that's the true effect, okay? But you're saying, but you can honestly say that 30% of people respond to the placebo. Mm-hmm. So if you know what the placebo was, you could then say, we give you this particular placebo, it was used in this trial because 30% of people responded to it. Yeah. You're then using a placebo ethically. So we got that published. It's quite an interesting idea. But actually, it turns out, you can give people, I, I, say, look, I say, take this, there's nothing in it. It's a placebo, but it'll make you better. Yeah. And people will still buy it. There's a, um, there's a, I think a psychologist called Irving Gersh, who showed you can give people placebo and they will still respond to it. Is how you sell it, and uh, and the guy who who taught me acupuncture was a very lovely, soft, gentle, tweedy, Mancunian guy who come up to people with his shaking arm, with his knee, saying, "I don't suppose you want me to give you some acupuncture, do you?" And the patient would back away, right? Because you know you see this guy coming with, <laughs> you don't want him sticking that in you. Whereas you say, "Look, I've got these knees; it's really going to help." He's, and they say, "Yeah, I have some of that." So it's how you sell it. Mm-hmm. The, and one of the problems with medicine is, is we're becoming so, uh, we're all worried about um, disclaimers and legal stuff that we have to tell everybody all the horrendous side effects from everything. Sometimes you generate the side effects that they wouldn't have had anyway by telling them. Yeah, but true. it's difficult because you have to be ethically, you have to be, to do, it's, it's hard to know where to draw the line. Here's an interesting question I want to ask you, yeah. actually, with what you just said there. I mean, we'll probably have to wrap it up after this as well because we're short okay. of time. Um, but one interesting question I'd love to ask you, with you having the background of being like a, a doctor and things like that, um, the power of the placebo, because like, a lot of patients will come to a doctor hmm. and say um, the power of seeing the doctor turns around and says, oh, if they, you've got cancer. Like, And the power of that actually can work as a reverse placebo and actually make the person even yeah, worse. Yeah. I mean, what's your thought, general thoughts around that? Well, I, yeah, I think one must strive to be honest, but um, but it's how you sell things, isn't it? It's how you say it. The most important thing in healing is the connection between the therapist and the person. Right, and they've looked at this. You know, there are psych... In any form of therapy, apart from the hands-on physical stuff, surgery, I mean, look... If you've got a problem with your car, you want a good technician to change, change the wheel. It doesn't matter what, what he's like. Um, on the whole, if you want, a, if you want a, a really good but brusque 
surgeon to operate on you or a really nice lovey-dovey surgeon who's incompetent you go for the brusque <laughs> surgeon because you, you, that's a physical thing he's a tech in there and you want that doing but it, but it's much less black and white than that having confidence in a therapeutic relationship there has to be a give and take and the problem with modern medicine is it's becoming mechanized mm -hmm. and and rigid everything has to be done to form to a formula so when i'm in my consultation now when you come into my room with your agenda, which you hope the doctor's listening to, before you're even in that room, my computer's saying, ask about this, check this, check that, put them on this, do that. My agenda's longer than the patient's agenda. Yeah. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, I don't. Right, because, because I, you, you haven't got a lot of time and you wanna make space for the person. That's what we're fighting against. That's what I'm fighting against. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Ian, thank you. thank you so much for yeah. your time, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. So nice much. to be with you. We'll have to definitely do this again so oh. much, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, cheers. So cool. Re really, really loved you. Really good. Another great conversation there. And like I said in the intro, I wish we had a little bit longer with Ian. But anyway, we're grateful for the time that we had with him. And coming up on the podcast in the future, we have about two or three more podcast conversations from our time at the Glastonbury Symposium. We all, and then after that, we have an amazing podcast with the leading researcher in Gobekli Tepe in the Denisovans. We have a podcast with a guy called Bruce Parry, who lived with all the last remaining tribes. And the other day, me and Chris recorded a podcast with a very interesting guy who was very much all about living a minimalist lifestyle, who lives in a motorhome. And we have many more interesting podcasts lined up in the future as well. So look out for them. And all we ask of you is that if you can consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon page or our one-off donation option. As you know, we never ever are going to bombard you with silly advertisements that don't serve you in any single way. All we ask of you is if you can consider supporting the podcast through the, them two channels. So anyway, we love you all. Have a great day or night wherever you are in the world. Peace and love.